Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that's accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at brain for biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comment by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. For this, our 50th episode, I am delighted to be speaking today to Professor Thomas Roulet. Thomas Roulet is Associate Professor in Organisation Theory at the University of Cambridge and Deputy Director of the MBA programme at Judge Business School. He is a Fellow in Sociology and Director of Studies in Management at Girton College, Cambridge, and Bi-Fellow and Co-Director of the King's Entrepreneurship Lab at King's College. Prior to starting an academic career, Thomas worked in debt capital markets on a trading floor in London and for the Centre for Entrepreneurship at the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, in Paris. His work has appeared in a variety of scientific outlets in management, including the Academy of Management Journal, Academy of Management Review, Academy of Management Annals, Journal of Management Studies and British Journal of Management. His book, The Power of Being Divisive, Understanding Negative Social Evaluations, was the runner-up for the George Terry Book Award of the Academy of Management in 2021, an award recognising the book having made the most important contribution to the field of management. The Financial Times described the book as a fascinating study of the social media fueled and fast-changing landscape of public opinion and the possible ways in which that might be beneficial. Thomas, it is great to speak to you. Thank you for having me, Laurie. For today's discussion, we're going to focus on well-being. And I'm curious to ask you for a start, how did or perhaps has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted on overall well-being? Well, that's a great first question. I hope you have the entire day to discuss that, Laurie, because it's a <laughs> huge topic. Uh, so, in fact, you know, as a researcher, I was interested in the question of mental health before the pandemic. And then uh, when the pandemic hit, as you know, you know, we shifted globally uh, to 100% of people working remotely. And uh, roughly in most developed countries, we were, you know, at 35% of people uh, working remotely one day a week. You know, so that's, that's the level of remote work that we had. And from one day to another, we shifted to this, um, you know, generalized form of remote work. And uh, as I was studying mental health, you know, I thought this is a perfect opportunity to collect data and get a sense of uh, how people's well-being were affected by that shift to working completely remotely in a, a situation of uh, high uncertainty. Uh, and, you know, what was the link between shifting to remote work, uncertainty caused by COVID and uh, mental health and well-being in general. And so... If we, I, I, I'm sure that you know you have fresh memories still of that shift in March 2020 when we all started uh, working remotely and how we felt. Uh, and so there was this excitement at the start where I thought this is a new way of working. I can make it work. I feel like I have more control over my day, um, more control over what I do. And in fact, it's true that uh, in a lot of developed countries we could observe that uh, there was a bump in productivity. People felt more productive for a short amount of time. Uh, for like four to six months, if you look at you know, official data, if you look at the data we collected with uh, Life Insurer Vitality, which is a large uh, scale data set 
of people um, you know, answering survey during uh, the COVID pandemic, we realized people were more productive. But it came at a cost, and it was the cost of well-being. Uh, and six months down the line, we could see that uh, people's mental health and well-being suffered. Uh, and in particular, people experienced you know, difficulties to set up boundaries between their work life and their personal life. And because of that, they lost a sense of uh, you know, what are the boundaries of their professional self. And because of that, a lot of people experienced you know, burnout, overwork, uh, and they struggled balancing their working life and their personal life, taking care of their dependence of their children, and at the same time, you know, managing the day-to-day -day, uh, of their work. So um, the, the, the impact of COVID, of COVID and well-being was, was huge, but we didn't get uh, to sense it uh, very early on. It took a little bit of time to appear. And you mentioned in your comments there about d developed countries, and, and obviously there, there were differences between developed and, and developing countries. But more broadly, were these trends that you describe consistent across various countries and, and various regions? Yeah, it's a great question. Unfortunately, I don't have a silver bullet to answer that question. <laughs> and I think it's, it, it is a difficult question for a simple reason is that we have data or good quality data only in developed countries, really. Uh, there is very little good uh, quality data in uh, developing countries. And you have a lot of crap, uh, rubbish data that, uh, you know, is collected by, um, by, by some actors in the field, which is mostly, you know, declarative data uh, from a broad population uh, of people that have very little in common. So that data doesn't tell us much, especially because it doesn't control for, you know, variance in the type of work that people do, whether it's office work, whether it's, you know, face-to-face -face work where the people need to be on the field to do their work. So um, it's very hard to get good quality data and very few, very few teams have actually collected good quality data that is homogeneous, that is in the same context or controls for variance in context, variance in work. And in particular, there is very little data in developing uh, countries on how uh, COVID affected work. And you can also imagine that there is huge variance. You know, if we compare a country uh, uh, like India, for example, where within the country, there is already a lot of differences in how people work, in how people approach office work. Um, there is geographical variance and there is contextual variance due to the type of organization. So if you think about... Uh, a multinational like Infosys and people, I, 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 during the pandemic, I collaborated with people at Infosys and the way they approached the pandemic, the way they switched to remote work was very similar to something that would happen uh, at Vitality, a life insurer in the UK. Uh, but in other contexts, in other organizations in India, it would be very, very different. There would be a lot more violence uh, across organizations than what we would see, for example, in the UK. Uh, so there is not there are not a lot of good sources of data to say whether there was consistency across countries and region, uh, and so a lot of what we know about uh, how the pandemic affected well-being is based on U.S., U.K., European data. Well, within that data that we do have, then were there notable variations in in terms of well-being and i'm thinking particular about things like age gender uh, other demographic factors that you might consider 
Well, that's uh, that's very important point, and so that's the topic of a recent paper we published in the MIT Sloan Management Review, based on that uh, data that we collected with Vitality, where the number one thing we found, which surprised us, is that um, any sort of lever we can use, for example, how much uh, collaboration time we ask people to have, how much focus time we ask people to have, the impact it has on well-being is drastically opposed uh, if we look at senior people versus if we look at junior people. And let me be a little bit more concrete. Junior people, we observed that the more collaboration hours they had, so the more you know, online meetings, interactions they had with other people, those junior people, they enjoyed those. And it actually increased their well-being. It improved their well-being. They felt better because they felt better connected with people at work and with the identity and the culture of their organization. By contrast, those collaboration hours, they created uh, time pressure and more stress on more senior people. So what we observed is during the pandemic, with remote work, a lot of people had uh, to jump on Teams meetings, on Zoom meetings, to you know, collaborate, to set up collaboration, to set up work for the day, uh, because they couldn't you know, pop out of their office and do, the, do it face to face. So because of that, senior people had a lot more of those small, practically meaningless meetings uh, with, uh, with their collaborator on Zoom or on, on Teams, and that uh, reduced the time that they had to focus on you know, meaningful, intense, uh, thought-triggering work, like you know, writing a report, um, thinking about the strategy of their organization, thinking about uh, the brand of their organization. So they couldn't have that time to focus. So collaboration hours for senior people generated more stress. Uh, by contrast, focus hours, so having set time for, pe for people to focus on, as I said, uh, thought-driven uh, work, was most beneficial for the well-being of senior people by contrast with junior people. So we know there is massive variance in how people were affected by different aspects of remote work, depending on their level of seniority, and obviously this is highly correlated with age. Uh, you mentioned gender, obviously, uh, here, uh, I, I'm not going to say anything new, I'm sure your, your listener have heard this, we know that the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, had different impact depending on gender. We know that women, for example, uh, the, the rise in productivity I was talking about was not evenly distributed. In particular, women had, you know, a lot more um, work at home, uh, taking care of dependents, taking care of children, and remote work in the pandemic was particularly harsh on people who had uh, dependents because uh, it meant that they had to organize their work around taking care of their children, taking care of their dependents. So we know that women suffered in terms of productivity a lot more than men um, in, in the UK in particular. And the problem with that is that we are only going to feel the impact and the consequence of that for careers for diversity at the top right now because women are going to be as a consequence struggling to to get their you know to get their work recognized to get positively assessed and so as a consequence they might miss on promotions on uh, you know opportunities for decision making because of the pandemic you mentioned in your your comments there the, the impact of say collaboration the flip side i guess uh, of that for for a lot of people 
particularly outside of work, was social isolation. Um, and, and to what extent have the impacts on well-being, which occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic, been down to social isolation and, and the pressures that maybe grew out of that? Yeah, well, I mean, we immediately, you know, when we shifted to remote work, we immediately thought the main impact that uh, this shift to remote work is going to have on people's well-being is because they will be socially isolated. And that's part of the story. It's a very important part of the story. We couldn't interact. We couldn't have this intimacy of being uh, interacting face to face. And through screens, we don't get, you know, smaller social cues. We don't get how people are feeling. Uh, what's their emotional state? So because we cannot perceive that, we cannot build a really meaningful connection and we feel socially isolated. We don't get the social support that we would get at work when we are working on Teams, working on Zoom. So we, we are more socially isolated when we work online. Uh, but what we discovered in our research is that social isolation is only part of the story. And this issue with the boundaries between work and personal life is another core part of the story. And it's something that is often forgotten, is that if we cannot differentiate work from personal life, then we tend to be more involved and too involved into work. We lost touch with uh, personal life and it's a lot harder to disconnect. And so people uh, people's mental health really suffer from that. So there is really a double whammy. There is the impact of social isolation and there is the impact of losing touch with our personal life, getting really engrossed into work and that accentuates our social isolation. And because other people that we interact with on our daily life, it's intermediated through screens, they don't see that we are struggling. They don't see that we are emotionally struggling, that we are socially struggling and that's what causes uh, the detection system at work for detecting well-being issues is it's gone because of interacting through screens. And if I pull together various strands of, of your comments there and then think about the impact of technologies such as Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams, on the one hand, uh, my, my sense from what you're saying is that they've been great for collaboration and keeping people connected, yet it can also be quite... Well, not so much isolating because they're they're helping people not be isolated, but at the same time, it's producing that distance or giving that distance, and we can't read all of those those personal cues that uh, people might typically look to. Is that a fair comment? That's a very fair comment. You know, so Zoom and Teams they were designed, you know, with basic features, uh, and the basic features of just getting people to jump on a call, see each other, talk to each other, even when their connection, their Wi-Fi is rubbish, they can still get to understand each other, have, you know, the, the uh, core communications, uh, core communication messages going, going through. Uh, but what we know, though, is that compared to, you know, a face-to-face -face interaction in your corridor, uh, Zoom and Teams, they don't enable you to, uh, to pick up on, on smaller cues on smaller, you know, emotions that people are experiencing. So it reduces your emotional intelligence. As a leader, when you rely on Zoom and Teams, your emotional intelligence drops. Uh, and um, there are lots of actors now that are trying to work on those, improve our uh, interactions. So, for example, you have uh, 
Silicon Valley uh, firm Apio was working on uh, um, meeting uh, interactions and meeting plugin that you can add on top of uh, a normal uh, a normal meeting software that will help people understand you know how they are experiencing the meeting and streamline meetings so they're actually uh, useful and not a source of time pressure for people. Uh, so Zoom and Teams, they are basic tools and I'm sure that we will see, you know, in the next couple of years, a lot of firms, you know, adding plugin or switching to tools that really enable people to have more meaningful connection when they interact with each other online and importantly, to have meaningful connection when they are in a hybrid format. Because in most cases now, we're going to have a Zoom and Teams meeting where some people are in a room and uh, there are really some small dots on your screen uh, and uh, some other people are online and you want to streamline the interaction so that people who are online, they are not excluded from the conversation. Or people who are, uh, you know, in, uh, in the meeting room, they are just not a little dot on the screen and you really cannot read their, you know, you cannot read their expression. When someone else in the room says something, uh, something dumb, you want to see them, you know, uh, rolling their eyes. You want to be able to catch that kind of uh, emotional experience. Because if you don't, you are losing on important cues uh, for, for your management skills. If we, I, I guess, step away from those immediate impacts of the, the pandemic on, on, on people and uh, remote working and ways of working, I'm curious to think about and explore the, the, the impact of well-being and I guess employee well-being and, and obviously in this context negative well-being on other measures such as employee engagement motivation um, and possibly even empowerment are they areas that have also been impacted by the, the COVID-19 pandemic and associated trends absolutely and you are a researcher yourself so you know I'm sure that uh, uh, you hear uh, the word correlation, you know, everywhere. And uh, yeah, all of this is highly correlated. Engagement, motivation, well-being. In fact, uh, in our work with, uh, um, with Vitality, we even aggregate a lot of this stuff in a measure called work quality, which captures everything and anything because it's so correlated uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, you cannot really unpack uh, causal links between all of those elements because they are part really of um, uh, the same, they would load into the same factor if I were uh, to use, you know, uh, some, uh, uh, some econometric uh, wording. Uh, so we know that it's all uh, well connected. And in fact, you know, if you think about uh, all the stories we read now about the great resignation, what is the story of uh, the great resignation? Yeah, we think it's a story of engagement. People who have been onboarded during the pandemic, um, they are disengaged. They are not connected to the culture of their organization, so they leave. Uh, and the direct element, the direct correlated element is that they are not happy in their organization. So they are not healthy. Their well-being has been affected by that shift. It can be due to the change of organization. It can be due to the, to the pandemic as well. And they are not motivated. If they are not engaged, they are not motivated. Uh, so all of this is really, you know, um, connected. It's part of the same story. And so when we talk about the great resignation, it's not just a story of uh, lack of engagement, of uh, uh, Generation Z that don't want to work. It's all of that. We know that it's bullcrap. You know, we know that people are motivated roughly by the same thing, whatever the generation they come from. 
whenever they came out on the job market, they are motivated by the same thing. It's just that firms and organizations haven't been able to engage people in the same way as they did before the pandemic. And they haven't been able uh, to preserve the well-being of their people. And the direct consequence is lack of engagement, lack of motivation and turnover. People leave because they think the grass is going to be greener elsewhere. It might not be greener elsewhere uh, because most organizations are struggling with that. But organizations are learning. So after a little bit of this turnover, I'm hoping that uh, firms are going to find a new balance to help people with their uh, well-being and consequently uh, rem uh, get people to stay engaged and stay motivated uh, in a hybrid context. If they don't do that, do, do you feel that there is going to be, and this is a slightly loaded way of asking the question, but do you think there will be an even greater uh, incidence of, of burnout, more so than we may well have seen over the last two years? Is that something which you feel is coming down the tracks? I think we have seen a huge burnout epidemic uh, with uh, COVID. It's hard to assess exactly the extent of that epidemic because the data we have is, uh, uh, is, is still you know, partial. But what we observe, for example, in the data we collected with Vitality is definitely uh, a peak in extra hours and a peak in burnout. Uh, I think I, I want to be optimistic, Laurie, so I'm going to say I think we are past the peak of, um, um, of the burnout uh, epidemic because organizations now have realized that well-being should be central in their approach uh, to work. Uh, and uh, they are working on designing strategies to address well-being issues. And they are being more sensitive to those problems. And really, the pandemic made them realize the importance of preserving their people's well-being if they want uh, to have a strong employer brand, to attract the best people, and most importantly, to retain the best people. If they don't want to have to hire new people, rehire them, uh, and so on, uh, they need to really focus on people's well-being. Uh, so I'm hoping that we are past the peak of, the, of burnout. I think we're going to remain at a high plateau of people suffering from a mental health issue because we are in a situation of high uncertainty due to you know, the risk of war, the, uh, the issues with... Uh, the cost of living, all of those are affecting people in the workplace uh, in terms of their level of stress. And uh, so I think we're going to stay at a high level, but I'm hoping that we are past the peak. Interesting. And, and hopefully that is uh, in, indeed the case and the way it works out. You mentioned a few moments ago this uh, idea of hybrid meetings, and obviously that is a, an emerging trend. But with many people either now back in the office or transitioning to say full-time office work again or hybrid work do you think that overall this will positively or, or perhaps even negatively impact on people's well-being once all of those things like commutes and uh, childcare pressures are taken into account most definitely uh, in fact our research really shows that uh, too much meeting kills the meeting you know, it makes you more stressed uh, because you don't have time to focus on meaningful work. So for senior people that have a lot of responsibility, uh, the meeting overload is, uh, is a killer. And we found in our data that people experienced during the COVID pandemic uh, uh, an average uh, 7.5 additional meetings. 
you know, we're talking about, you know, more than 20% increase. Uh, and uh, frankly, we haven't gone down when uh, shifting back to hybrid. So people are still experiencing a shitload of meeting, uh, pardon my French. And a lot of those meetings we know are useless. So we ask our people to rate their meeting, the quality of their meeting, and a lot of them are pointless. They are just, you know, uh, to solve little things. You are with someone you are managing and you have to, to explain them uh, something because you cannot do it face to face because that day both of you are at home or one of you is at home, you know. So it is messy, it is complicated. Meetings, they, we need to really think how we streamline them and how we uh, protect people from a meeting overload. At the same time, uh, as I said earlier, we know that uh, more junior people, those meetings, it helps them feel, uh, uh, you know, feel the connection with the, the, the identity and the culture of their organization. So for them, it's quite crucial. Uh, but what they are looking for is really, you know, human connections, human connections and connection with their organization and identification with their organization. And that's why when we set up hybrid work, we need to, you know, set up time so that the new people, people who are on board, they can connect. They can connect with people at the same level of seniority and they can connect uh, with uh, uh, more senior people and they can learn from them. We can maintain, uh, you know, learning processes. Uh, uh, and learning within teams and across teams because we bring people in the workplace to actually collaborate and interact and generate you know, those uh, learning speedovers. When you're talking there, it, it brings to mind a conversation I had with a company I was consulting to last year. And in order to encourage that human contact, particularly for, for new joiners, they made a point of arranging team meetings in car parks in the middle of the, the country. So it was central to everyone and people would just drive in, they would park in the car park, they could maintain social distance, they'd bring their own takeaway lunch or sandwiches or the company would you know, pay for it, but they could meet. And, and as I said, particularly for the new joiners, it gave them that sense of human contact and an understanding of who it was they were actually working with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something that we did here at the University of Cambridge. Okay, it's a small city. We all work you know, in a small uh, a geographical zone, but uh, people would, uh, you know, instead of um, uh, instead of uh, having uh, meetings on Zoom, if they live in the same neighborhood, they would uh, just have a walk. You know, it would take a little bit more time, but uh, just the power of a walk, the power of being outside when you have spent the rest of your day uh, online on Teams is actually really helpful to maintain a good level of well-being. Uh, so, yeah, I think those practices are, are absolutely crucial. And uh, I, I know from uh, from conversations with uh, with the uh, neuroscientist at Trinity College in Dublin, Professor Shane O'Mara, you know, walking is also brilliant for things like creativity and innovation and uh, and and general cognitive function. So you had multiple benefits coming out of that as well. Absolutely, yeah. So you mentioned a number of um, organizations as we've been talking there. Are there any examples of of really good practice that you could mention? when it comes to well-being and particularly as we emerge hopefully from the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, on the question of well-being, um, I think increasingly organizations need to think about well-being, uh, you know, as uh, they need to strategize about their, their well-being. They need to organize uh, infrastructures and support structures that uh, help their people. 
And so I have written another paper on that. I'm sorry, I'm you know uh, shamelessly uh, plugging in my own <laughs> research. I apologize. <laughs> you work with academic Laurie sometimes, so you you must know that we love to plug in our own research. Uh, but uh, in in another paper, uh, again in the MIT Sloan Management Review, I talk about well-being strategies with my colleague uh, Ben Laker at uh, the University of Reading. And what we discuss here is having holistic well-being strategies. So uh, not only looking at addressing well-being issues when they emerge, but building a culture where people feel comfortable talking about their mental health, even when they are on Teams, even when they are on Zoom, uh, so that you can detect issues uh, at an earlier stage and that you build a culture where people are comfortable realizing the sort of mental health or well-being issues they are facing and talking about it uh, and, uh, you know, seeking the change that they need to address those well-being issues, to feel better at work uh, and to, for example, to be protected from burnout, to be protected uh, from, you know, high level of anxiety that ultimately will affect them and will prevent them from, uh, from working. So uh, in terms of best practices, I would say it's... Um, about trying to find ways to collect data or get a sense of how people are feeling about their mental health, you know, through one-on-one -on -one discussions where people are comfortable enough to talk about it, through survey data, although we know that uh, it's extremely hard to get people to self-declare their mental health issues, so it's quite challenging, but we know that a lot of actors now are trying to gamify the way we uh, report our mental health at work, so there will be, I think, more tools emerging in that area. Uh, and uh, then once you know that there are mental health issues, is how do we, how do we address them? Most HR, you know, they haven't developed yet uh, the skills to address those issues. And also they haven't helped managers develop the skills to understand mental health issues. Uh, so I think the best uh, organizations, they need to train people to better understand what is anxiety, what is burnout, how do we detect it in ourselves and in our teams uh, to help people, uh, you know, go through those difficult uh, situations uh, and recover and feel better at work so that they enjoy work and they enjoy collaborating, they enjoy uh, staying in their organizations and you don't have any risk of people, of good people leaving and risk of uh, attracting good people because you have, uh, you know, uh, a, you have employees that suffer from mental health issues. There's some great um, organizational strategies and approaches you mentioned there. But if we think about the individual leader who might be working with a team of, of people, what would be your top tips for an individual leader who, who might be trying to grapple with uh, well-being issues within their team or indeed within their organization? Laurie, I'm going to have a, a massive spoiler. But I'm writing, on, uh, I'm working on a book right now, which is exactly on that topic. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to spoil, you know, my own writing, but I'm, I've been quite obsessed about that, you know. And I think leaders need mental health skills. So we, there's a lot we can learn from people who deal with, uh, you know, mental health issues on a daily basis, in particular, you know, therapists, psychologists, counselors, who have developed, uh, you know, empirically proven uh, tools to address uh, to address issues. For example, you probably have heard of uh, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, it sounds very absurd and you know very distant from what we do in organizations. 
but in fact, it's very simple ways to reframe our approach to, uh, you know, to, to mental health challenges, to sources of anxiety. Uh, and so I, I really do think that we, um, we need to go way beyond just emotional intelligence. Because what is the ancestor of mental health skills in the workplace? It's this broad concept of emotional intelligence. It's not exactly the same story when we think about mental health skills, but it's a good start to try to understand the emotions of others in the workplace, getting a sense of how they feel, you know, why are they reacting in a certain way? Why are they saying things in a certain way? Why are they getting upset in a meeting? Um, and, you know, grasping those clues in the workplace, being sensitive to this and building up on perspective taking, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people we work in to understand what sort of challenges they are experiencing uh, and helping them, uh, helping them address those sources of anxiety and address uh, what makes them feel uncomfortable or uh, unwell at work. Uh, so I think, uh, I think there will be a lot more, you know, uh, a lot more efforts uh, by, by organizations to train people to recognize you know, the, 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 the signs of anxiety, the signs of burnout, and uh, for managers to actually you know, have tools to act upon that. Uh, so not only trying to um, understand what is causing it, but also creating infrastructure, you know, reorganizing their teams, you know, tackling job design issues that are causing sources of anxiety and being more agile and flexible into shifting job design, shifting team structure, shifting work allocation, shifting assessment and evaluation in the workplace so that uh, uh, those sources of anxiety are addressed and people, you know, uh, feel better at work. Okay, some great insights there. If people wanted to find out more about your research, including the, the various papers and so on that you've mentioned, uh, is there a, a website or somewhere that they can go? Yes, for sure. Thanks for, you know, helping me plug more of my work even uh, during, during this podcast. Yeah, they can go at my, on my website, uh, thomasroulette.com, uh, T-H-O-M-A-S-R-O-U-L-E-T.com. And then I have a little uh, page on uh, research where they can click on my practitioner work. There is a column on the right where they have the list of uh, all the papers I have published in the MIT Sloan Management Review and Harvard Business Review, uh, which covers a lot of those uh, questions. And then on the left-hand side, they have more my research-oriented work uh, where they'll see kind of like the underlying thoughts and the underlying uh, data collection and thinking going into my, my practitioner work. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I hope they can find some of those answers uh, there. And also, I, I write a column for Forbes uh, where, I, um, where, I, you know, where I try to think about those issues as much as I can uh, so they can uh, have a look at that as well. And I discuss, for example, hybrid work, burnout are, are some of the core topics I've covered in my Forbes column. Uh, as you can see, this is a bit of my obsession, Laurie. So, um, yeah, I, I do think about it, write about it uh, most of my time. I think that's absolutely fine because uh, you've got some great insights to share. And thank you very much for sharing them, Prof Professor Thomas Roulet of the University of Cambridge. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me and uh, keep up the good work with, uh, uh, with the podcast. It's, it's a great podcast. And so I really enjoy that. And yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. It's been great speaking to you. La 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 la
song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.